This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're back, breaking the hiatus for realsies this time. We're finally uh, back. Yeah. And we've got a lot of stuff we're excited about. We, Like, I, like we said in the little like mini announcement we put out, we've been working to kind of rethink what we make, how often we make it, uh, how we want to engage with this. We're still working on some further ideas for things yes. like Patreon and YouTube stuff, but... That's not what this is about. This is about podcasting. So let's get on the road. <laughs> wow. Can you tell I'm a little rusty? Uh, <laughs> Just a touch. So this episode, well, first of all, Dylan, how are you? I'm doing all right. Um, it's been... God, when, when was the last time we recorded? It, it doesn't bear thinking about. Tell me what's <laughs> going on. You're, uh, you you well, are in I'm, a show right now. I'm currently in the show. Yes, that's correct. Uh, to push the playbill to the beginning. Yeah, no, I, I'm in a show. Uh, I've been cast by the uh, by an Akron theater uh, to do a show about being black in America, and so that's been fun. And I've been doing monologues, and I don't typically do monologues. I'm used to <laughs> uh, people to people scenes, um, so that's been a fun little learning experience. Yeah, and, monologues um, are. They're they're a beast that I think is not properly understood by people who are not in the biz, so to speak. Yeah. Because there's something that, like, everyone knows that, like, you know, Shakespeare wrote a lot of monologues. And there's, like, popular understanding that, like, if you go to an audition, you probably need to have a monologue or two prepared. But, man, doing them well... Yeah. ...is fucking hard. <laughs> doing a good monologue is tough shit, man. Yeah. I am excited of... to get to to get to see you in this next yeah, weekend. Yeah, I uh, I hope I hope you're able to come out here, and I hope you enjoy. Yeah. Also, I don't know. Uh, we're to to take you behind the curtain. We're doing some some backlog recording so that we have a little bit of a buffer in case we ever have to miss a week, which to to hopefully mean that we can be more consistent, like we were at the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly when you're going to be hearing this. Maybe next week. What I just said is uh, a couple weeks ago. Who the fuck knows. But yeah, I, I'm I'm excited for you. It's very cool that you're I'm I'm glad that you are getting back into the live theater saddle. I know that was that was kinda on hold both with yeah. uh pandemic and life related things for a while. Yeah. No, it's it's I I'm quite happy that we're back. We a dinosaur story. Uh, thank you. I was too scared <laughs> to do the full bit, so I'm glad I'm glad you That's what I'm here for. It. I it's it's like doing stunts but in podcasting. I say jokes that my co-hosts are too afraid to say. Yeah, what are we talking about this time, Dylan? I'm excited about this one. Um yeah, so uh I guess uh before we talk about like the episode type like what the topic's going to be, um to play a game optimally is to play a game um 
with like your idea with your knowledge of the game and your strategy for the game being so exact that you play with very little margin for error um everything is calculated you have like everything kind of if not planned in advance like you you you've kind of have whatever game you're playing you kind of have it routed you have the worst possible scenarios like already kind of accounted for you're taking into consideration a lot of things like anything that could go wrong and what the safest way to get to the end is um we're gonna talk about playing suboptimally Hell because yeah. um yeah playing suboptimally is fun and i feel like uh that doesn't get enough appreciation yeah this you you brought up this idea and i immediately was very excited because i've got a few different angles of this that i i think are interesting but yeah i i think that this is something that suboptimally immediately sounds derogatory especially with how much of like online conversation around games especially things like rpgs uh tends to be about how to really optimize play and how to really optimize uh your whether that's your build whether that's your stats whether that's your like output in terms of in-game resources Capital G gamers love optimization. They love knowing that they are doing things in the best way. But sometimes it can be fun to go against that grain. Uh, there's a, there's a, I feel like I end up plugging this channel's video essays a lot. There's a, there's a video, there's a YouTube channel called Folding Ideas. Uh, it's a filmmaker named Dan Olson who does really good video essay stuff. Uh, a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half. I'm not entirely sure. Time doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, he went. <laughs> very viral for a like feature length documentary he made or video essay documentary he made about the rise of NFTs as a sort of online phenomenon. More recently than that, he did a video titled, I think it's something like why it's rude to be bad at Warcraft. And it kicks off with an anecdote about a, a world of Warcraft player who very purposefully was playing suboptimally. Like he was role playing. He was <laughs> doing the thing that, you know, theoretically a role-playing game should encourage you to do uh and he was playing a gnome and he didn't wear shoes because he didn't want to wear shoes because he was like doing the halfling thing uh and he walked everywhere he refused to run and at first people thought this was charming and then his guildmates started getting mad at him for not having shoes in his build it's a it's a very fun video essay that i think is well worth checking out it kind of gets into sort of the psychology and and reward paths that a lot of games tend to encourage but we want no part of this today we want to talk about suboptimal play what was on your mind when you first brought this up dylan uh i i know i'm i ask for the for the kayfabe of the audience <laughs> i'm i'm aware uh yeah so when i when i initially uh pitched this episode uh it it came after playing a i want to say like four or five hours of um final fantasy 5 actually final fantasy 5 for uh those who don't know, is the fifth entry in the Final Fantasy series. <laughs> uh, no, okay. Uh, I th I want to say it came out in like 1993 or something. Um, it's kind of notable uh, for being like one of the more mechanically dense Final Fantasy games and also one of the more difficult Final Fantasy games. Particularly uh, notorious because uh, when they were translating Final Fantasy games for the Super Nintendo, it was noticeably skipped over oh. when bringing it to the States. Um, I wasn't aware of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, it wasn't as like plot-driven as 4 or 6, which did get 
uh, released in the States, and then also on top of that, uh, again, it, it was more mechanically dense than 4 or 6. Gotcha. Um, and then on top of those reasons, I think just... In, instead of uh, Final Fantasy V, what we did get was uh, Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, uh, which I think to convey um, what type of game that was, it was released in um, Japan as Final Fantasy USA. <laughs> and it was basically <laughs> a, a dumbed-down uh, beginner's first RPG uh, type of experience. Where like I feel insulted, but also I can't say they're wrong. Yeah, like... <laughs> The genre had, like, incredibly niche appeal um, for console gamers in the 90s. Um, even now still, but, like, you know, just the niche is bigger than it was back in yeah, the 90s. Yeah. But, yeah, so uh, if, if I've done anything, I hope I've conveyed to you, the listener at home, that um, Final Fantasy V is, like, a very mechanically intricate game like it is it is a final fantasy for the person who enjoys rpgs for their mechanics what sets um, it apart in that way like yeah so um it, it's funny because like uh up until final fantasy 5 there was like this kind of up until final fantasy 7 i should say there was kind of this odd thing the series was going where like they would do one entry that was like very mechanics driven where uh you kind of pick a uh, party and like they give you a lot of agency in how to customize your party. And then the next game would be like very story driven with like characters with like more fixed uh growth. Okay, that's not necessarily true, but well <laughs> I'm not gonna get into the minutiae here. Um <laughs> this is a sweeping generalization. Sure. Um but uh so what Final Fantasy V does is it takes the job system that was introduced in Final Fantasy three and uh basically overhauls it. So um, in Final Fantasy three, in Final Fantasy one, <laughs> you uh, when you when you start a new game, you pick what you want in your party of uh, adventurers. So in the first Final Fantasy game, you choose between a warrior who attacks things with a sword, a uh, black belt who does martial arts and can also fight with nunchucks, um, a thief who is really fast, uh, a white mage who casts healing magic and a black mage who casts hurting magic. And what Final Fantasy III did was, um, rather than picking your party at the start of the game and having to rock with that for the entirety of the game, what Final Fantasy III did was it gave every party member the ability to switch bet uh, between jobs. And so, and like... If, if I remember correctly, you... It worked, in honest, all honesty, kind of like, you know, a, a pen and paper RPG like D&D, &D, of, like, you would gain levels in the specific job. Mm -hmm. Am I remembering that correctly? It's been a yes. long time since I played FF3. Yes. You you can't multi-class in Final Fantasy yeah. 3, but um you uh you are able to uh level up and you know um your your character will uh when you switch to like say white mage, you'll be white mage level three or whatever based on how how many points you've get you've earned for that particular job while also having like a character level. This is getting a little too Dense, sure so, sure um I'm, <laughs> we can go back to, to abstractions i was just trying to remember no i i understand yeah your character gets stronger but they become more specialized in the jobs they spend more time as that's yeah. uh the simplification of this explanation um so uh that being said what final fantasy 5 does is it adds an extra layer where um it is easier to switch between jobs 
Um, in three, there was like a cost to do that. Uh, that that was removed in five. And then additionally, as you as characters become more proficient in the jobs that they um, are doing or they're performing, um, they will gain abilities that become um, inherent to their character. So um, a, a white mage, a, a character who has leveled white mages up to level three will now be able to cast level three white magic no matter what other job they pick. Are you are you with me so far? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's specialization, but also opening the doors for... Yeah, you, you are able multi-classing to... Multi-classing, for lack of a better word. Yeah, like, you, you are you able retain... to inherit one ability from uh, a class that you've specialized in um, and give it to whatever your character currently is. Um, and this gets crazier in later games, uh, particularly Final Fantasy Tactics in Ten Two, but we're not going to get into that. <laughs> for for now, uh, oh God, bravely defaults fucking nuts. But anyway, <laughs> um, stay on target. No, I know. I just wanted to give them all shout outs. Final Fantasy Five, basically, if you're a thief and you decide you don't want to be a thief anymore, you might inherit skills the thief gets like they are able to find hidden passageways if you want or they can still steal from other enemies uh like pickpocket them uh just like little things like that so um one of the things about final fantasy 5 is that like there are very popular builds like you know people have like tier lists and rankings for this job is very good and this job is not so good or like you know, like, the, the optimal way to deal damage is to get to level 5 in this job and then switch over to this job for, like, this many levels so you can have these abilities and this will help you at this stage in the game and, you know, all that stuff. And that, I realized that burns me out. <laughs> I don't like power gaming like that. In fact, yeah. I even um, something I, I would used to do uh, in Final Fantasy Tactics is I would be like... You know, the more I understood a, what a character's job is, the more I would be like, all right, I want to grind this character to this level in this job so I can give them this ability and then switch back over to this one. So, you know, and like try to that that's a lot of fun when you have a lot of free time. <laughs> right. But um, I, I don't have that kind of free time anymore. Um, And, you know, I, I kind of had an option because I'm playing the uh, Pixel Remaster on PS4, um, which comes with the new ability to increase your uh, growth rates if you so desire. I didn't want to do that, though. Um, in fact, I halved my uh, EXP growth rate, and uh, that's not important. This is for you, Chris. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the thing for me is, like, I, I've picked the, the jobs that I want each character to have based on what I think fits their personality, which is not something everybody does. <laughs> um, no, but again... Much like I said earlier, I love it when you get to roleplay in an RPG. That's it's fucking cool. It's excellent. I love it. It's so good. Um, and then additionally, like, I will, you know, occasionally I'll swap over to a different job if I see that, like, an early ability a job gets might be useful for, like, the current um, classes I've assigned each character. But for the most part, um, I've just kind of been playing it based on, like, roleplaying vibes and, like, you know, when I switch over to a job, it's because I think this will be cool for the character based on the abilities I've already earned through them, just through the sheer fun of role-playing. 
and that's been very freeing um that's super not cool. having to think about am i playing the game right and focusing more on am i playing the game in a way that works for me am i playing the game in a way that like gets me into the fiction that makes me care about these characters as more than just interchangeable blanks uh slates of multiple uh character utilities and functions has been great um that's part one of final fantasy V. <laughs> i have another part but if you want to if, if i i kind of want to hand the conversation over to you because i don't want to monopolize it for the no i gotcha i i think i'll just i'll tag in with like the more minor of my what i was kind of thinking about in regards to this because i think it it plays into what you're talking about Okay. Uh, and then I'll get I have I have a slightly meatier thing that will I'll I'll loop back to when you're done with with Final Fantasy. Um, OK, the first place my mind went to for video games as far as suboptimal play goes is a series where I would wager most of the player base plays it suboptimally, but most of the online discussion ah. is about optimal play, <laughs> which is the Pokemon franchise. Oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> like I, I do not say this to sh- to throw shade. I think that it's very cool that Pokemon as a franchise has become something that can be deeply appealing to both a ca- a very casual audience and an incredibly hardcore competitive audience. Like that's really impressive. There's not mm-hmm. a lot of games that manage to do that as successfully as Pokemon has as a franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I have never gotten into like competitive Pokemon. I've done a couple of like online trainer battles in Sword and Shield and I don't think I've done any of it in Scarlet and Violet. But like the the competitive Pokemon scene is something that I am I am aware of. I know that it exists out there. I know that like a lot of the conversation around the games online is driven by that scene. Mm-hmm. But I have no personal interest in it mostly because for me the pokemon franchise at this point is more a sort of nostalgia engine for me than anything else i loved i loved the original uh generation i to this day still really love gen 2 i think heart gold and soul silver are probably my favorite pokemon games i think the original gold silver crystal uh slap also but the heart gold soul silver Heart Gold Soul Silver re-releases were spectacular. And with the more modern ones, I even now knowing the existence of this competitive scene, even even with the ways that they have added things like online play and the I know in Sword and Shield it was like the the trainer tower where you could go for the online matchmaking. And they've done a lot to to open that up and to make it easier as far as the logistics go to mm-hmm. play competitive Pokemon. But that just holds no interest for me. I play these games because I like exploring the worlds. I like seeing how they tweak the Pokemon formula. Is that so they... much about the vibes for me. I 100% agree. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't care if my team is optimized. I'm going to make a team out of the Pokemon that I think are the coolest and like maybe tweak it here and there to make a gym battle easier. People, I'm going people to... People will tell me... Oh, sorry. Do you mind if I... Yeah, no, go for it. <laughs> Uh, people like I'll I'll see people complain about Gen Two, which like they're fair to. I'm not going to defend Gen yeah, Two. Not like, a, not a like perfect the, game, right? Uh, but like you know, just talking about like the the uh, physical special split not existing and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, but counterpoint, 
it's really funny when Whitney's milk tank wipes the floor with me because oh of God. like bullshit so programming. Funny. So funny. <laughs> and again, like I think as far as you were talking about the vibe, like I think that's a big reason why Gen 2 holds so strong in my mind is that was where they really leaned into like the the day night cycle, the day of the week cycle. Mm-hmm. Needing to kind of like allow yourself to be immersed in this world to get the most out of it the inclusion the the way they made the world feel contiguous by letting you go back to an admittedly kind of shrunk down version of the Kanto region after you beat the game Mm -hmm. it I think that game or that that I guess generation of games is a big part of why I feel this way I love the energy of the Pokemon franchise I think it's really cool to see what they try to do with it I think it's really cool to see what's new and see what's old and sometimes you get pleasantly surprised. Like I, I thought the story in uh, Scarlet and Violet was surprisingly good. It wasn't Mm -hmm. great. It's not Shakespeare. It's not, you know, it's not going to be willing winning a Pulitzer, but they, they did a really good job at doing kind of the, the good fire emblem trick of creating these characters that are, one note enough that you immediately get what they're about, but well written enough that you can like grow to care about them. Right, right. And yeah, I I I think that trying to play Pokemon super optimally and playing with an eye towards I want to get, you know, all of my IVs maxed out efficiently on this team. I'm gonna I'm gonna breed uh Pokemon so that I get the right, you know, random traits. I'm gonna really grind to to build this competitive team and play competitively it's awesome that that's in the game it's super cool that they can have all of that in the games for the players who care about it without it getting in the way of people like me who just want to vibe and catch little animals and also not getting in the way of the predominant audience of these games who are children uh Mm -hmm. And I don't want to like completely discourage that. There are definitely children who get deep into the competitive aspect of things, but like there are also kids that are like, I want to wander around this world and catch cute animals. Right. So I think it's really cool that that is all there without getting in the way. But I think that for me, the idea of digging into that part of why I don't get into that is the idea of trying to optimize my playtime of Pokemon really runs counter to what I love about Pokemon, which is the vibe. It's hard to maintain that that kind of role play and that that immersion in this world when you pay too much attention to the numbers that it's assigning to your little guys. IV training really kills the vibe. Like again, fascinating that it's there, super cool that you can like play with that. Watching like speedruns of Pokemon games, I find fascinating, especially the older ones where they're doing all the fucking RNG manipulation. Like such cool little sandboxes of games that I think a lot a large portion of the sandboxiness was probably never like fully intended. Mm-hmm. But that they've leaned into it and allowed it to be there for people who want that is cool. I really don't want that. I don't want to worry about my IVs. I wanna I wanna find a cool team and go on a road trip. Yeah, and I mean like part of that is kind of what Nuzlocks are all about. Uh oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Like Nuzlocks aren't in in a way, like you you are kind of forced to play optimally in a different way. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so it's it's not big like, change in how that makes me engage with those games. Right. 
But like, um, and just a quick reminder for people who aren't familiar, Nuzlocke runs of Pokemon games are like, you know, you catch the per the first Pokemon you find on any given level, um, and then if they if they are knocked out, they are considered dead, and you have to remove them from your party. Um, like very uh, what draconian uh, level of difficulty if you yeah, don't know what entirely you're doing. self imposed. So, so you like <laughs> in a way, it kind of demands that you play optimally <laughs> all the same. Um, but like in terms of like the actual like base level design of Pokemon, it is suboptimally in that like you might get a rat uh, ratata uh, that has like a sub optimal um nature that like gives it worse stats and you know fuck it we ball you gotta roll yeah. with it now <laughs> and i think i think that the key there is you are being forced to play optimally but in a way that feels true to the spirit of the game yeah it's be it's playing optimally with the hand you're dealt and leaning into the role play of like all right Rattata, you and me <laughs> It's you and me to you and me to the elite four. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's my that's my spiel on Pokemon. I I I am endlessly impressed and often frustrated by this weird series that hasn't really gotten to change much in going on right. thirty years. But man, uh, there's something about the vibe that really I I every every new game feels good. Listen, man, we watched a cartoon when we were six, and it rewrote the chemistry of our brains. <laughs> Enough that I cried at fan art of Ash Ketchum leaving the show. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, take us, take me back. What else did you want to talk about in, in FF5? Yeah, so I, I hope I didn't scare away the listeners with all these talks of, like, stats and growths and numbers and stuff. We're, we're going to talk about something a I little bit more. I don't want to hear math. I want to play games. Well, we're, we're going to talk about something a little bit more action-oriented isn't quite the right word, but, like, I'll... Chris, uh, what do you what can you tell me about the active time battle system in Final Fantasy? If you, uh, I can tell you, I think it's cool as hell, and that it's had a lot of imitators in the RPG space. The active time system was that originally brought out in four uh, or five. Four, it was four. four. Yes, yeah. Uh, essentially, Final Fantasy is in this era is it remains a turn based system. But if you have an is has active play toggleable? Kind of. And I'll I'll elaborate on sure, that. Sure, I'll I'll there. I'll leave that for you then. But with okay. the active play system, it is a turn-based system, but rather than you know, in something like a Pokemon, Pokemon's turn-based battle system is like you get a turn and then your opponent gets a turn, and who goes first is based on speed stat. Or like, you know, Similar, a lot of RPGs use similar systems where there is a stat that determines when your character goes and you just, you know, you select what's going to happen and then your opponent does their thing and it's just back and forth. Yeah. The active time battle system changes it so each character has sort of a meter that is counting down to when they next act and you can sort of queue up their next action while you're waiting for that meter to fill. But because... It adds sort of a, a simulacra. Um, actually, <laughs> what's that? So, uh, what what you're saying is actually uh, based on Final Fantasy XII, which is my personal favorite and probably the one you've seen me play the most of. Is that? Can you not queue it up for Final Fantasy VII, or is that? 
You have to go when the bar, when the bar finishes full, filling. Oh, uh, when the when the bar finishes filling. Oh, I have. I it's been a long time since I booted up FF Seven. Apparently, no, you're you're <laughs> absolutely fine. That's why I stepped in. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so it it adds this level of like the CPU doesn't have fingers that need to manipulate through menus and and select what the the enemies are going to do. So it adds a little bit of like if you want to, if you really want to do well, you need to know the menus well enough to navigate to what's going to happen as soon as that bar fills up. Yeah. Uh, so that your characters aren't sitting there waiting with a full bar for the, uh, for, you know, your instruction of what move to use. Yeah. And so to, to add a little bit of, um, nuance, I guess, nuance isn't the right word, but to add a little bit of something to this conversation, I do want to say that usually by default, most Final Fantasy games are set to the wait option, which is to say that when you open up a menu where you have to select from a list of items or spells that you want to cast, um, the game actually pauses and like the, the computer and also your other party members will wait for you to select the action you want to use before uh time resumes um and that setting is how i've always played these games (laughs) um just because like for me personally for the longest time the idea of playing an rpg where like like the idea of having to menu in real time does not sound like a did not sound like a uh engaging or strategic like layer that makes the gameplay more interesting it it just kind of you know leaves a wider margin for error and that sounds stupid and bad because these games are about maybe not necessarily strategy but no you know what i i i I will say like in in my mind i used to think they were about strategy now i realize they're more about like optimized inputs um, and just trying to finish combat in as short rounds as possible while using as as few resources as possible. Um, so you don't want to use up all your items. You don't want to um, lose all your uh, magic points uh, by yeah. casting too many spells. Um, you want to know exactly what you're up against and do it quickly because you have an entire dungeon you need to run. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, wait allows you to kind of, like, you know, take the time to, like, find the spell you need based on the information you know about the fight and then, like, do it optimally. Um, and, of course, as you know, this is a episode about where we talk about playing games suboptimally. So, um, yeah, uh, through my game of Final Fantasy V, which I w- will remind everyone is not only one of the more technical games in the series, but is also considered one of the more difficult ones, um, Particularly, it is, I would consider it the most difficult of the Super Nintendo games. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been playing it in active mode. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, because why not? Let's, let's uh, live a little. Um, and I think it, it, it did something interesting for me. Um, and before that, I, I really get into that. I wanted to touch on something else Chris said when uh, talking about RPG combat flow. So Chris, you mentioned Pokemon and how uh, usually when you input your turn uh it's based on the user speed stat who goes first yeah this is i want to say i don't know if this is true for pokemon but it's true for dragon quest so i'll I'll say this is half true the speed stat actually improves your chances of going first but it does not guarantee you going first Mm. um at least in dragon quest i might be wrong in pokemon but like for now let's just pretend i'm right about pokemon shut up (laughs) 
So essentially what this means is that there's always in the possibility space of how a round of combat goes, there's always a chance that you're not going to go first. You can improve your chances of going first by buffing your speed stat and um, raising that number. So uh, like when you do the dice roll to see who goes first, like you have an advantage on... But uh, it's not always guaranteed, and so what that does, um, in Dragon Quest in particular, is uh, when you are preparing for the next round of combat, you all you kind of have to predict like what the worst case scenario is and try to mitigate that. And what that does is that puts you in a position where you might not make the optimal move, because right. you might think, I need to heal this character because I don't want them to get their health too low where I can't do anything about it um during it's like playing it's like playing blitz chess it's like playing chess when you've got a five minute chess clock ticking down so every move you have to make you know with a little more urgency than you typically would so you're you don't have as much time to like fully analyze the board and make the you know well well categorically in, in, best decision in a dragon quest i would say you have time because uh at least up until dragon quest 11 um you queue in all of your party members moves ahead of time and then combat plays out and you see what happens the consequences of your decisions and sure. then you try to plan for the next turn and what uh you know what that does is that you are basically you're trying to predict what will happen so you're um your mage might have like some pretty high health now but like you might be thinking okay but th this mage cannot survive three attacks from the three yeah. enemies so maybe i just want to heal them to be safe and you will lose more mp that way because that's a spell you could have casted towards killing the enemy but at least you are reassured that your mage isn't in danger um so you're, you're kind of playing predictively and sure that kind of predictive level of play means that uh, you cannot play optimally because yeah. you are not responding to um, what is happening. You are predicting what might happen. Um, I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that sounds super fucking cool. Yeah, that, that's why I kind of defend Dragon Quest. I know a lot of RPG fans turn their nose up at it because it's like too old. <laughs> but like, I genuinely think that the, uh, it's archaic battle system kind of creates an interesting dynamic where you're trying to predict the AI of the computer. Um, so um, playing Final Fantasy on active mode kind of accomplishes a similar thing where because um, because while you're making, while you're in a menu making a choice, uh, the computer's not waiting for you. Yeah. <laughs> you have to think, oh man, I got to get a turnout right now. And so, like, you, you're, you're thinking, it, it puts you in the spot of, like, oh, I could heal, or I, I should go into my items and maybe use a potion, or maybe I should use this magic scroll that does a lot of damage. And while you're trying to figure out what is the better solution, um, maybe your healer gets attacked. Oops. <laughs> and it, it kind of <laughs> forces you to make a decision, but even then... If, if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to cast this spell, and then your healer gets attacked, to go out back into the menu and go to the item menu and find a potion that'll heal them is time being wasted. So you're, like, thinking, like, okay, maybe I'll just, I'll do this magic spell, so while the animation for that is playing and the game is paused in that time, <laughs> it, I'll, open, it'll give I'll me time. take my next party member <laughs> and open up the item menu and heal, and so 
It just creates a completely different dynamic. That's really cool. Yeah, because you're not thinking, what is the current status quo? You're thinking, all right, that was a wash. That was a bad move I did. Now I have to find a way to buy time uh, to input my next move <laughs> while not giving the computer a chance to make their move because they already know what they're going to do. God, that's super cool. <laughs> I hadn't even considered the implication of moves having different animation lengths to give you more time in the menu. Yeah, like I didn't either until this game. <laughs> That's really fucking cool. Yeah, and um, you know, later Final Fantasy games do uh I would argue more interesting things with the active time battle system, but I went from like one of that system's like biggest critics to like, oh wait, no, this is actually really good and I really like it. Oh no. <laughs> I I, I want to talk uh touch on Final Fantasy 12 real quick while we're on the subject of yeah. the ATV system. Um something that game did was that uh combat takes place like in the overworld so like while you're exploring like a cave or a um open field or whatever um you can be attacked by monsters without uh any kind of level transition and so what that means is that uh basically everything feels seamless and so what you do in final fantasy 12 is you kind of program the character's ai like you you program the entire um, party to respond to a series of if-then statements. So, for example, I can tell my white mage, if there is a party member whose HP is less than 30%, they will cast this tier healing spell, whereas if it's less than 80%, they will cast this weaker tier of healing spell. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of criticism for that system of like programming the characters is that it gets to a point where like the game starts playing itself. And, like, to a certain extent, they're right. Like, you know, I don't have to do anything. But I can also choose to, like, only cover half of what I would normally do in a given fight if I wanted to. It's one of the things where, like, it plays itself, but in in a way of your design. Mm -hmm. It's like the... I'm reminded of the people who develop the, like, incredibly efficient, largely automated farms and things like Harvest Moon and Stardew Valley. Right. Absolutely. Like, the game is playing itself, but only because you have put in a lot of time and thought and, and you know, resources to make it do that. Right. And make it and, do that in the way that you want it to. And I would say, like, that. while that is probably the optimal way to play that game... Um, you have the freedom to literally program your, the party any way you want. So if you really wanted to like have your, uh, your teammates do like all the stuff you want them to do without having to micromanage them and then give yourself the character you choose to play as and have them do the things you want to do with manual inputs, that might not be an optimal way to play the game. But I don't think the game is so difficult that it would be impossible to do that. Like, you can... It might not make sense to, like, do that for every party member. Just because that's, like, a lot of micromanaging and yeah. just genuinely <laughs> does not sound like fun. Um, But, like, you know, you have levels of, like, alright, I want this character to very basically cover healing. And then I'll, I'll, I'll step in and manually override something if I want to deal with this, 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 or this. Um, you have that freedom, and I, I think I would rather have that freedom than not have it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's all I have to say about Final Fantasy XII. Alright, then I'll take us home by talking about 
not a video game. Magic? The place my brain, yeah, the place my brain first went, went when you mentioned suboptimal play was Magic: The Gathering, uh, which I've been getting back into in a big way over the last couple of years, and in particular, a a format of Magic: The Gathering called Commander or Elder Elder Dragon Highlander. If your back hurts, um, <laughs> so most most ways of playing Magic are heads up, one on one. You have twenty life. One of you is going to win. One of you is going to lose. Whether you're playing, you know, most forms of like competitive magic, uh, standard, pioneer, legacy, vintage, modern, uh, and then things like limited, where you are playing with sort of a, a, a minimal card pool that you are receiving at random. So draft and sealed are the two ways of playing that way. All of those are 1v1 magic. Uh, and you know, one person is going to win the match, one person is going to lose the match. And there are different degrees of intensity there. Uh, you know, there are stores where you have limited uh, events on, you know, a weekly basis where people show up and they're there to have a good time and talk to people as much as they are to play the game or to win all the way up to tournaments for thousands and thousands of dollars where people are playing very competitively and really oh, trying geez. to bring like I mean, fully optimized decks. What was that? No, I was I was reacting to the the amount of money and then I was like, wait, I, I watched people play street fighter <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly but so that's sort of the 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 quote unquote default way of playing magic and as such most decks that people build in that sort of environment tend to be pretty well optimized there are things like band lists so if a card is you know warping a format around itself and like every deck is playing it and if you don't play it you're just not gonna win that tends to bring down the ban hammer so that you know, it's not like there is one deck that you have to play. There's a, there's, you know, in a healthy metagame, usually somewhere between like half a dozen to a dozen and a half viable decks, some of which are going to have better overall win rates than others. I'm getting too in the weeds. Commander is an entirely different beast. Commander started out entirely as like a casual format for kind of invented by like people with a whole lot of cards who wanted to have things to do with their friends that weren't just like one-on-one mm -hmm. uh commander is different from a lot of other formats in a few specific ways one is you have sort of a color restriction on your deck there are five colors of cards in magic and in commander you pick one card to be your commander uh and all of the cards in your deck need to be inclusive of the commander's colors you can't if your commander is a blue red creature you can't have any green white or black spells in your deck okay similarly commander has a deck size of 100 cards most competitive magic is 60 cards because you want consistency and commander is a highlander format meaning leaving aside the basic lands which are what you need to be able to cast your spells you can only have one copy of any given card in your deck in okay. most competitive formats you can have up to four copies of a card so I, I just wanted to double check to make sure I, I yeah. have retained everything. So Please. a commander deck is specifically for competitive play, or is it just another mode of play? It's another mode of play. Okay. Uh, entirely, well, we'll get to that, but it is, it is its own format okay. of the game. Uh, so where standard, pioneer, modern, legacy, these are all like s formats that, you know, people play casually but they are the formats that go up into that competitive sphere 
or at least historically were the only ones to go up into that competitive sphere. They are 60 cards. You can have four copies of it of any spell. There's not really any color restrictions, though, except for the ones of like, you know, what do you want to do and how consistently do you want to be able to do it? Mm-hmm. Commander, 100 cards, one copy per spell, and you are limited to the the colors of the card that you choose as your commander. The other big difference is that commander is typically played in a a four for, a four person sort of free for all match. It began as a decidedly casual format. It was something to do when you know if you had three friends over and you wanted to play magic, you would play commander because that way it's not like two you know one v one things. You're you're hanging out with everybody. Mm-hmm. And as it has gone on, commander has become. I don't know the exact stats, but certainly one of the most popular ways of playing magic to the point that there are people who play commander and nothing else. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. It is. And I get why it's fun. It introduces the, the limitations on, you know, you can only have one copy of a given spell. You have to be more strict about your colors. It makes it more interesting from a like deck building perspective. You can kind of put your own spin on things. You can, Honestly, kind of reminds me of the Nuzlocke conversation we just had. Yeah, in 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 all honesty, it is not not too far off from the appeal of the the kind of limitations that the Nuzlocke run puts on you. And again, because it began as this sort of casual space, it was where you would put the cards that you think are really cool but aren't actually like good enough to see play in those hyper competitive formats. Uh, whether oh, it's because they're they're you know too expensive to be able to get to consistently uh, in terms of in-game resources, or they they do something cool and flashy but not super reliable. Uh, it became the place where, like, if you have a card that you really love that doesn't quite make the cut, put it in your commander deck, and it'll probably do all right there. That's so cool. I really yeah, like it's, that. It's very, very cool. It is it is one of my favorite ways to play. I, I think my favorite way is more in the limited sphere because I like the kind of random, you know, pat cracking and see what you get aspect. Uh-huh. Um, but Commander is very popular for a reason. And, and Wizards of the Coast, the company that makes magic, has seen this and has started putting out a lot more product geared specifically towards Commander. And then at some point in the last few years, something interesting happened where Commander players started to get more competitive to the point where now there is... Commander, or Elder Dragon Highlander, so named because the first legendary creatures that people had access to to make decks around, or at least the first really good ones, were Elder Dragons, was what they were called. And then there is Competitive Commander, or CEDH, Competitive Elder Dragon Highlander. And a kind of schism has formed between people who play the one and people who play the other. And there are people who play both. These Nothing like this is ever black and white. But CEDH is incredibly high power because you have access to, you know, cards from all the way through the game. There's a banned list in Commander and it's consistent between the two. But, you know, a typical game of Commander, you know, casual Commander is going to start with a few turns of everyone just kind of doing setup stuff. It's the format where you want to play your big, splashy, expensive card. So everyone is running things that let you kind of ramp to the point of being able to do those things. Okay, and so, so what the you're tip- telling me what you're telling me is that playing a commander deck is literally just charging up to become super saiyan. Genuinely, yes. Like okay. that is a very apt analogy. 
So, you know, a typical commander, a, like casual commander deck is going to spend two or three turns at least usually setting things up and maybe doing a little bit to futz with what your opponents are doing. The typical competitive commander deck is trying to win by turn two or three of the game. <sighs> so you can see where this kind of divide pops up. I see. Yes. <laughs> and it's a divide that I find interesting personally because of the way that I like to play. Like, I came to Magic mostly through draft, which tends to be more competitive. I like playing proactively. I like interacting with what my opponents try to do mm -hmm. uh, to throw them off their game so that I can get into what I'm trying to do and try to win. But also, there's a lot of people in the in the more casual side of the commander area where that's viewed as, like, not mean but it can it can be met with a little bit of like well why are you picking on me kind of energy yeah it's it's kind uh, of a read the room type of situation absolutely and that's a big that's a big part of it there's a lot of conversations on online in the magic space about having sort of like rule zero conversations between games trying to get a feel of like what's everyone trying to do here what's the what's the vibe we're going for mm. how interactive do we want to be are there any like gameplay styles that really put anybody off because there's plenty of things you can do in magic that is are degenerate and rude mm. um but so like that is that is an important thing and that is valuable but also like it's wild to me that we have developed this this ecosystem of, of this one format of the game that varies so wildly between people trying to pop off as quickly as possible versus the people who want to like you know, spend the two episodes getting to Super Saiyan 2. Right. Uh, and it's something that I have, I have grappled with because the people that I tend to play Commander with, it is not CEDH. We are not playing at the power level of these decks that are, you know, doing absolutely degenerate stuff by the second and third turn of the game. But it's a group of people that play interactive magic and that, like, it's not uncommon to see, you know, removal for early mana dorks and counter spells and these things that are, are more of a staple of like the competitive side of the game than the casual side and things that are actively like getting in the way of what your opponents are trying to do. And so I had this interesting situation where I went to uh, I spent some time in early May at the Magic Con in Minneapolis uh, and I spent a fair amount of time in the commander area and kind of navigating that of like, all right, are my decks... I, I felt like I was in this weird place where, you know, in the commander area of the convention, people could have little signs of like, I'm looking for a casual game or I'm looking for a competitive game. It was very well run. It was very cool. And I'm walking around with my decks like, I don't think these are good enough to hang with the really competitive decks but I think they're mean enough that strangers in a casual pod might not take kindly to me. <laughs> uh, and what I've found for me, I think, works is that I don't like to play suboptimally in Magic. Like, if I have, you know, if there is a situation brewing and I have a card in my hand that can shut it down in a way that mm -hmm. is good for me, I'm going to do that because that's yeah. the way that I like to play the game. So the trick that I've found and something that I've seen getting more traction online that I think is very cool is intentionally building your deck suboptimally ah, so that I you see. don't put yourself in the position of I have it, but it would be mean to do. 
Mm-hmm. You just, you know, maybe that particular kind, you know, you you cut the land destruction that really attacks your opponent's resources in favor of later game win conditions for yourself. You cut the, like, really efficient counterspell and you put in a less efficient counterspell with a cool effect that makes it feel less bad when you get your opponent with it. All of these ways of of cultivating a almost like cultivating sort of a communal play experience around a less optimal form of the game mm-hmm. so that everyone can can have their fun. That's really cool. I'm I'm yeah, glad it, that, that that space is being created. Yeah, it's very, very fascinating. And like there's still it's a tough thing because like there are bad actors as there are in any any oh, you know nerd space where like sometimes somebody sits down at a casual table with their deck that's designed to win on turn two and just pub stomps and nobody has a good time. But generally speaking, the people who want to be playing the more competitive game, they don't want to do that either. They right. want to sit down with other people that are trying to play at that level and see yeah, they, they don't which want of their to win necessarily. They want to take part in the community. Right. Yeah, they want to they want to play a game at that level. It's like LeBron James is not going to have fun schooling a high school basketball team. He wants to be playing against other NBA players. Like mm-hmm. it's that kind of energy and and seeing that that there's always discourse, there's always discourse online about every fucking community. But generally speaking, it's it's been cool to see these two kind of parallel realms develop their own rules of engagement it's just it, and then i'm in the middle like i don't know i don't have the money to do be over there but i i'm too mean to be over there so i guess i'll just <laughs> build decks really carefully yeah and that's the end of my magic the gathering talk i've tried really hard to not get too minutia heavy in there well my head didn't start spinning hey so i'm glad I, that's i'll yeah. take that as a win uh <laughs> Yeah, I I think that games that allow for this kind of flexibility with how you engage with them are really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that like the different experience like like what you were talking about about playing in active mode and keeping that on. Again, you said that thing about like all of a sudden the length of animation becomes something to think about. Yeah. I was that blew my fucking mind. I think that's so cool because that turns it turns a new thing into a mechanic that you can engage with. Yeah, because I, I think something that I never really appreciated, I, like, I had this problem with Final Fantasy for a while where I thought, and like, as much as I loved the story and presentation of those games, like, coming back to them after playing other RPGs, I feel like the animations are too long, like, you know, whole laundry list of, like, issues I had with them that, like, disappeared as soon as, like, those animations were turned into a mechanic. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that that is a very cool example of like the way that just kind of shifting your perspective can deepen your appreciation for something. Like ever since I started this like I'm going to build my decks a little bit a little bit jankier and see what I can do. Mm-hmm. It opens you know in 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 magic it opens your eyes to like whole new eras of cards that you had never looked at before as you're like God, I need to I need to find a worse version of this effect. All right, let's go on. Let's pull up a search engine and see what we what we can find. And you can find like whole new kinds of cards that you end up thinking are really cool and you find a home for and and you can build, you know, a new 
game experience. And I saw somebody on Twitter the other day talking about how they look at building decks for Commander as like a storytelling experience. And they were trying to like... Okay, yeah, let's talk about this. I want to hear this. All right, let me, let me find this tweet. It was uh, a Magic content creator. Uh, their at on Twitter is at Mana Curves. They go by Just Chase. Uh, and they... Let me find this tweet. Here it is. Nope, that's a different one. They, they tweet a lot of pictures of, of piles of cards. Here it is. I like to view deck building as a form of storytelling, and so I've decided to tell the story of my favorite horror movie, The Thing. The commander is Morophon, The Thing. The deck will have 12 humans, one for each character, and the rest will be changelings. All the spells have meaning behind them and relate to the movie in some way. I've had the stack on my, deck, uh, the stack on my desk for half a year, and I'm finally hire, uh, uh, biting the bullet to build it. I love and I think that that's so, so cool. Like, that's I a really that cool so way of bringing something of yourself to this game. And I think that is the draw of, of more casual commander to so many people is like, it can be, you know, a lot of people get into magic because they want to build a deck. They, they come up, they see a card that they think is cool. And it's like, oh, I want to play with this. And the more competitive sphere is not super kind to that. Like mm -hmm. there are cards that are just better than the other cards. And so if you want to win, you know, a standard tournament, you're going to build one of the handful of really good standard decks. and more casual it's formats like sorry uh i just i have to say this it's like yeah. how uh you know in pokemon i always thought it was cool that there were like themed gym leaders like oh I'm yeah the fire gym leader you know whatever um but like when you think about the actual mechanics of pokemon like you don't do that yeah absolutely <laughs> and so i think that it's cool that this this space exists in the casual commander area for people to express creativity in that way uh without getting you know, without having to worry about just getting their teeth kicked in by someone playing, you know, the best meta list. Right. Uh, yeah, that's I, I think that that is that is sort of the big thing that I'm getting out of this conversation is just. Yeah, it can and, be uh, it can be a nice refresh and a nice sort of it can be a nice way of sort of refreshing your view on yeah, a game absolutely. and on a system. And yeah, I think. That that's kind of the important takeaway I I wanted to leave behind when we when I pitched this episode originally, is um, part of me like wants to like kind of relate this back to to my experience acting, um, yeah. Uh, something I I had to realize to uh like really get back into acting in earnest is that it's it's about creativity. I think it's it's yeah. so easy like given that we're both fine arts majors, Chris. I'm sure you agree with me. Sometimes you get so into like the academia of what we do that we kind of forget like at the end of the day you you're reading a script and extrapolating those experiences and and putting yourself into it. Yeah, and I and that's the the key to good performance is like being able to let yourself be the role and and give of your and and be there earnestly and yeah it it all the best scene analysis in the world won't help the performance be good if you can't find a way to you know maybe let go of that really cute bit of of analytical work that is mm -hmm. preventing you from putting your full self into it right it's got to be authentic and you know i think a part of authenticity is having fun right yeah absolutely and and finding the ways to do that even if they fly in the face of of you know how things are supposed to be done mm -hmm. wow we found the button 
look, look at that. We're not so rusty after all. <laughs> well, I think that about does it. So we're going to yes. wrap up and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you, as always, for listening to Backstage Gaming and for uh, for coming back if you were away while we were away, which is very understandable. Uh, yeah. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about us or our show, you can go to bsgpod.com. That is our website. It's got a contact form so you can reach us out to us directly. Uh, and wherever you are listening to us, whether that's on Spotify, on Stitcher, on the Google po- or the Apple Podcast Service and the Google Play Store, if you have an offer or if you have the option to leave a review, leave a rating, something like that, we'd appreciate it. That kind of stuff is uh, important for esoteric reasons beyond my my full understanding but the algorithm (laughs) must be appeased uh so thank you for everyone who does that and uh and please consider doing that and sharing with the people in your life who you think would like what we're doing hey dylan what about social media yeah oh god it's been a while since i've read this let's see if i still got it (laughs) yeah if you want to hit us up on social media you can find us on facebook and on twitter where our handle is at bsg underscore cast um, also, if you want to talk about us, maybe celebrate the fact that we're back. Hey. Uh, you should use that hashtag BSGpod to let everybody know. Also, huge thanks to our friend Brendan French for the key art they have provided our show. If you dig their stuff, you can check out more of it on their Squarespace at brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N-French.squarespace.com. Uh, you can also find them on Instagram.com slash Brennan French Arts and on Twitter where their handle is at Brennan underscore French. Thank you also to BioQuery for the views of our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. If you like our theme, you can also find more of his music on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com slash BioQuery. That's SoundCloud.com slash B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y or by searching for BioQuery on Spotify. Thank you to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network, even after our our great truancy. Uh, If you want more podcasts about video games from a variety of different angles, you can check out at HPVG Pod Network on Twitter. We don't have a Patreon anymore. We took that down because we're looking to revamp it and make sure that we get the that y'all get the most for your money and that we are able to make the most use of it as a platform. But once that's back, we will, uh, of course, inform you about it on the air again and we'll tweet about it as well. But to all of our patrons, thank you for your support while we had that up and we hope to earn it back again once we relaunch. And I think that just about does it. So thank you all for listening and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye bye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.